I'm Dr. Patrick Brady, and I am in the Department of Criminology and Criminal Justice, and I primarily teach classes in victimization, policing, and juvenile justice. Dr. Brady has been a professor at UNC for two years. He is passionate about studying victimology, policing, and cybercrime, and he has come out with many publications on these topics and spent years working with those communities to gather research and gain a better understanding. He is so passionate that we had a 40-minute interview, so this episode will be broken into two separate parts. This is the last warning I am going to pop in just to say. I have no clue what was happening with my microphone. I listened to it back and it does not sound good. So bear with me on these two episodes. Sorry. For this episode, I am going to start off with a trigger warning. It is nearly impossible to talk about victim studies and victimization without talking about how people become victims. So in this podcast episode, there are talks about abuse, stalking, victimization of elders and minors, and other crimes that come along with victimization. Why did you choose to come to UNC? I actually came to UNC specifically because the department actually required a victim-based course, and you just don't really see that in social sciences, which I think is kind of crazy to think that like we have so many people who are going out and working with the community, whether they are in the criminal justice system or the healthcare system, and they've never had any exposure to how to work with someone who's in crisis or understanding trauma behaviors, and I think that that is a, is a huge disservice, and so so when I saw that UNC actually required it as part of the the core courses, that was definitely a selling point. And UNC needed someone to come and teach the the victim based courses, and so it was a great opportunity. Do you know how many schools do teach victim based courses, or like if there is like a little bit of a? I do. I do actually. And in fact, that was the first research study I ever like published was looking at the extent of victim-based courses in social science degrees. I was working for a professor when I was getting my master's degree at Boise State, and she was interested in this question, and she had me and another grad student comb through like 800 different department websites to look for what their core requirements were, all the way to the specializations of faculty and if they studied victim-based topics and things like that. And so what we found is across like the 800 programs, it was only about 11% that actually required students to take a victim-based course. So which means that pretty much, you know, 90% of people who are getting degrees in a social science field have never taken a victim-based or have never been required to take a victim-based course. So when Dr. Brady talks about social sciences that could benefit from learning about victimization, he is not just talking about policing and criminal justice. He's also talking about medical fields, mental health fields, teaching fields, you know, the list literally goes on. But what he's trying to emphasize is that a lot of people could really benefit from learning about victimization at the college level. This would be before they enter a world where they may have to work with victims, and these courses aren't required for students at the majority of schools who are going into fields like this. So at UNC, is it just one course that's a victim-based course that criminal justice students are required to take? Yes, it is called Victim Studies. It's a 300-level course. And so in that course really focuses on, you know, a lot of the research in terms of victimization and victims' experience with the criminal justice system. So I generally kind of walk students through theories about why people are more likely to become victims than others. And then we move into working with like specific types of victims. So the first kind of half focuses on vulnerable populations. So we talk about child maltreatment, differences between abuse and neglect, how to kind of identify some of these behaviors and how we as mandatory reporters 
can can help with that aspect of it, but also in terms of the investigative aspects of it. And then we talk about elder maltreatment and some of the issues that go along with that and just how a lot of these crimes are very hard to investigate and prosecute because of the vulnerability of the individuals with elderly individuals maybe having some dementia or you know, other kind of barriers that prevent them from fully identifying what's going on. And same thing with kids too. And so helping, you know, students kind of understand that. And then we get into more specific topics. And so like we learned about domestic violence in Colorado and how Colorado is really different in terms of their approach to domestic violence, what Colorado considers domestic violence to be. And then more recently, we are focusing on this idea of course of control. We are talking about how abusers will use crimes like stalking and strangulation to really kind of instill fear and control in victims. And that really helps students understand like why why it's very challenging for victims to get out of abusive relationships. You know, I, I tend to kind of always emphasize if our criminal justice system could guarantee that cooperating with them would guarantee safety for victims, we'd be able to, you know, really kind of nip domestic violence early on. But uh, in, in all honesty, you know, abusers kind of create a, a world that victims live in that makes it really kind of hard to make decisions for themselves, which include leaving those abusive relationships. And then we just focus more on like kind of victims experiences in the criminal justice system, kind of the idea that our justice system is a gauntlet and helping students understand that, you know, arrest and prosecution is not always the outcome that victims want and kind of just how to work with victims and understanding the roles of, you know, victim advocates in the community, but also victim witness coordinators and police departments and, you know, district attorney's offices and, and the vital role that they play in keeping victims up to date with information and, and support and advocacy. And so really the whole kind of takeaway of that aspect is, is to help students have a better understanding of how trauma really impacts the brain and how trauma behaviors are really kind of indicators that our current justice system really focuses on in terms of assessing credibility with victims. So a lot of times when investigators perceive victims to not be credible, a lot of that can be explained through trauma behaviors. And if we understand how victims remember details during traumatic and stressful incidents, we can get a better understanding of how we can work with victims to provide them with a, a better support as they go through this gauntlet of a system. And so really just helping students know how to work with victims and to understand that it's it's not always an easy thing and that not everyone is you know always trained to be a you know a good active listener but then also like how to refer victims to services and things like that regardless of whether they work in the criminal justice system so helping them understand you know you never know when it's going to be a friend or a family member or maybe even you that becomes a victim of a crime and so really just providing students with the the skills to understand how we can better approach victims and what we need to be doing when we're working with victims and and providing them with the support and resources so that they be they can become much more resilient can't believe that there aren't as many of that in just academia in general yeah very important so what made you want to study criminal justice? Mm. Well, I mean, it started early. I, when I was in elementary school, my neighbor was kidnapped. And so that was like the first time, like I really ever had exposure to the FBI. And like most people in their lives, like never have an experience with the FBI. And if you do, it's, it's probably not a great situation. And so I just remember 
the the FBI coming to this very small town and like searching for, you know, my neighbor and things like that. And she was never found. And so it's still an unsolved case to this day. And they are fairly certain that they rolled up the family. And so they, the kind of leads think it might be a stranger situation. And so I always just thought that was interesting. And I just remember the community's response to it. And that's right on the cusp of where a lot of schools started to implement like stranger danger programs. And what we know from the research is that like stranger danger programs are not effective at all because strangers are pretty much the least likely ones to hurt, hurt kids. And so I always just thought that was like really interesting how they really emphasize the stranger danger mentality. But then when I started to go to high school and college to realize that like, oh, that really wasn't effective. But at the time, that's what they knew because it was 1993 kind of thing. And so that always kind of interested me in like our uh, the response to victimization. And so from there, I started studying forensics at Weber State to kind of get better at like how we can collect evidence in these cases. And then ultimately, I just became fascinated with the, the topic and, and really wanted to get better at using research and data to to answer, you know, important questions that we have, not only in terms of improving responses, but preventing situations from requiring criminal justice responses. So can you tell me a little bit about your history of studying victimization? The the first time I ever really started working on a research project was I took a psych and law class uh, in my undergrad. And the professor was she was a subject matter expert in child witnesses and child victims testifying in court. And so we had a whole section on, you know, children in the legal system. And I just thought that was kind of fascinating, the idea that, like, there could be, like, a seven-year-old who was a, a victim of a crime and testifying in a, a criminal trial. That, to me, always just seemed, like, insanely stressful. And I was curious in how the system really works with victims when they are children or adolescents. And, and so the Professor was conducting a, a research study, trying to figure out what is the best time of day to interview a child. And so she got a big grant from the National Science Foundation, which allowed her to be able to hire me and another student to work for her all summer. And so I was a, I wouldn't say I was able, I was like told to go to all these daycares throughout Utah. And we would do one of two things. We would come to the daycare and one of us would do like a magic show for the kids. And then the other one would come two weeks later and interview them using open-ended questions. Like, tell me more about that versus like direct questions. Did the magician pull a coin out of your ear? And we did, th we did interviews at three different times of day to figure out, you know, what times of day children were better able to provide accurate information and whether or not open-ended versus kind of closed-ended questions influenced that. And so that was really fascinating because it, it made me realize just kind of like how tedious it is to actually collect data and do it well. And it it wasn't until I, like I, like I was able to go to a conference to present on the study and I like had never presented at like a major conference and stuff. And then a couple other professors in the field came up and they're like, you should go to grad school. And I, at the time I was getting close to graduating and I was thinking about like becoming a cop, but then like looking up what it requires to become a cop. And I'm like, I don't want to do setups to get a job. So I was like, sure, I'll go to grad school. And then it was uh, in grad school that I actually started working for this professor who had built all these relationships with different criminal justice agencies throughout Boise, Idaho. And so she was very connected with people. And it was awesome because around Boise, like there's a lot of very progressive agencies 
in terms of, uh, you know, improving their responses to like violence against women. And so um, outside of Boise, they have a family justice center, which is a kind of one-stop shop for victims. And so victims can go there for, you know, advocacy, counseling. They have Department of uh, Health and Human Services there. So getting them like WIC, food stamps, things like that, as well as like they have forensic interviewers, they have uh, sexual assault nurse examiners there. So it's it, instead of forcing a victim to kind of go to all these different offices around town, it's one-stop shop where they don't have to keep repeating their story over and over and over again. This professor had partnered with these agencies and stuff like that. And so when I started going to grad school, she had just started this evaluation of two different responses to domestic violence. And so I was lucky enough to go and collect a lot of the data for it. So I was able to go into all these different agencies and talk to people in professions I'd never even heard of. I had no idea what a sexual assault nurse examiner was or anything like that. Uh, and I didn't really even have a whole kind of understanding of what like domestic violence was. You know, I grew up in a relatively privileged family, my parents are still married and they still like each other. And, um, you know, they were never mean to each other in front of us. And I, I never even really like saw domestic violence in my community until I started, you know, talking to the people who investigate and prosecute these cases. And it was just like very eye opening. And it was crazy. It was like some of the stories that they were telling me, like that's like the domestic violence aspect, the coercive controlling aspect when like when victims are in fear of their life because another person could absolutely take it. Like to me, that seems like the most terrifying and alarming situation ever. And so it really kind of opened my eyes to this world. And so like before that, I haven't really, I hadn't really studied domestic violence. While I was working for her, they actually put me over in an agency as part of my graduate research assistantship over at the Idaho Coalition Against Sexual Domestic Violence. So I was their research specialist there. And then one of my direct supervisors, she is actually one of the leading experts on, on stalking. So like multiple times she was going out of town to go train officers and victim advocates about how to improve their responses to domestic violence, sexual assault, and stalking. And then part of a, a grant I was working on, uh, she actually brought me with her to do some of those trainings. And again, it was just like fascinating, you know, learning all about this and like seeing officers who are bummed that they have to go to this all day training in the morning. But by the end of the training, they're so pumped because now they have all this like great information of how to really deal with some of these challenging cases. And to me, like that's really kind of what settled in is like, Oh, I want to I want to get better at like helping officers get better at their job. And it was through kind of that experience that I learned that so many officers like want to do well. They don't they don't always love, you know, the way that policing is is portrayed in the media and things like that. And and it helps us remind us that we have to understand that like every police department is so different. I and mean, we have a ton of research to show that. So it was really cool to see officers who were even just kind of like mediocre, not super thrilled about domestic violence and stuff like that to like actually feel like it was worth their time. And I just really like that aspect of it. It was really cool to see officers and advocates and prosecutors like get excited about the work that they've been doing, especially when the work that they're doing, like there's not always a, a ton of wins in those cases because they are hard to investigate and prosecute. And so that really kind of helped me get a better idea of like, I guess I'm just going to go to school for the rest of my life to figure out like how to be better <laughs> at it. And, and, you know, and I'm, I'm glad I, I did, like, I never thought in a million years I would be a professor, but what's awesome about this job is that I kind of get the best of both worlds where it's like, I don't have to do sit-ups to get a job. I don't have to carry a badge and a gun. I don't have to go into dangerous places unless I want to, but I get to work with all these practitioners as they do their work. And it's, it's just, fascinating to learn from them what you know I'm learning in, in my research and then now I'm actually collaborating with practitioners because I want them to be a part of the research 
process and to actually write on some of these articles that we get published. And so that's been something I've been trying to do more recently is to collaborate with practitioners so that when we are conducting research and we are writing up like recommendations for what we found, the recommendations are coming from people who are doing this work on a regular basis. So like if they ever read my article, which they probably wouldn't because most practitioners do not have access to all the scientific articles, it's crazy. But if they did, hopefully the information in this article resonates with them and they can see some of these implications and be like, that's a really good idea. You know, we could implement this here and here and here. And so that's been something that's very fulfilling and and really kind of fuels doing this work because it is like we work all the time as much as it seems like I just show up two days a week. You know, we, like I'm spending most of my time working on these projects and and with other practitioners and stuff. And so it's a very rewarding and sometimes stressful, but like kind of the best of both worlds where I get to work with students and they're the future practitioners, you know? And so it's it's great to kind of take all this like information and and actual data to show them like, hey, this is actually how we can improve our responses like everything that we're frustrated with our system now like there are ways that we can go about and thinking of different ways to collect data through interviews and and surveys and you know official data all this stuff like that like all that's really great information that we can use and use our skills as researchers and, and criminologists to kind of analyze complex data and terms and help kind of package the findings in ways that are going to resonate and are practical to the people that actually need this information as they do the work on a regular basis. So would you say like it's important to sort of have more of a mix of academia along with like criminal justice jobs since there isn't much especially in like policing? Yes and no. So what's what's awesome now is like we are starting to see that there's a lot of things that police officers do that you don't necessarily need a badge and a gun for. In fact, I have been I'm writing on this paper right now about job stress and, and police chiefs. And there's a bunch of these studies that have used objective stress measures like what are those things called? They put them on the wrist. They track your steps. Oh, like the Fitbit? Yes. So using Fitbits and stuff like that to try to kind of map where stress is and like when stress happens mm-hmm. with officers. And like for these studies that I read this morning, the takeaway was policing is actually a pretty sedentary profession. It's it's very, very boring, mixed with about like 5% spouts of excitement. So again, there are a lot of things that officers deal with where they do need the badge and a gun. So we're starting to see a a larger, what we call civilianization of policing again, where there are so many positions in policing that uh, civilians can work where they don't have to go become a police officer. They're not commissioned or sworn officer, but they have a badge and a gun. And so we're talking about like victim advocates in police departments, data analysts. There's also like legal counsel in police departments, but as additionally, crime mapping is becoming huge. And so we're starting to see a lot of the skills that we are incorporating in the criminology and criminal justice program, trying to make it as, as, as applicable as possible to some of these these jobs. And so that's also kind of part of my job as a professor is to help students understand that just what you see on TV, like that's just such a small percentage of the the jobs that are available in this field. And, and that goes for victim advocacy to policing, to the legal system, all the way to corrections as well. Like there are lots of positions in corrections where you were not necessarily a corrections officer. Definitely liking that, but I, I also am a big proponent of this idea that Academics kind of get this negative kind of connotation, especially from cops, is that like we just kind of sit in this ivory tower and we are like armchair quarterbacking investigations and stuff. And for the most part, yes, we are. We have a lot of time to you know analyze data and think about different theories for why things work and things like that. But at the same time, we have to be very careful of as criminologists to 
understand that practitioners matter and that they are ultimately the experts in the field on these topics. Like as much as I can read books on the on policing, like I'm never going to have that experience of someone who does policing on a regular basis. And so for me, that's why I try to, you know, go on ride alongs regularly, try to interact with cops so that I can get a better understanding of like the stressors that they go through or their issues with investigating certain types of crime and things like that and what they would recommend to improve. And so I think as academics, we we really need to do a better job of of collaborating with practitioners because it's it's kind of crazy sometimes like to think that there are people who study policing who've like never been on a ride along or like never really interact with police officers. And so like you're reading some of these articles and being like, mm, I mean, yeah, that looks great on paper, but in reality, like this would not be able to be implemented in a department kind of thing. So yeah, so definitely I, I just think that collaboration is is so important and to build these relationships with the idea that like I'm walking into these agencies that have like a ton of experience with what they're doing. And so I never want to come in and be like, oh, I'm a domestic violence expert and this is how you're doing everything wrong. That is not like my goal. My goal is to go in there to learn from them and see what we can take from that in terms of what I've been doing and things like that and how we can work together to better address common goals that we have with these and stuff. And and I think that requires kind of getting your your feet wet. Oh no, interactive <laughs> practitioners. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Dr. Patrick Brady talk about his experience studying victimization and why it is an important course for criminal justice students that often gets overlooked at the college level. There will be more on this topic in the next episode, and his podcast idea will be in there as well. I'm your host, Isabella Marcus Porter, giving you a taste of UNC.